Hello and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. My name is David Ward and coming up this month, riff-raff at English National Opera, competitive cabanovas and a Mozartian chorus of CGI stormtroopers. From the ridiculous to the sublime, we also have an exclusive interview with the conductor Sean Edwards. To discuss these and much more, I'm joined by the soprano Lorna James. Hello Lorna, how are you? Hello David, I'm very well, thank you very much. And you? Oh, I am very well, thank you. All the better for seeing you here. Oh, lovely. And joining us via Skype from London is the director, Emma Black. Hello, Emma, how are you? I'm very well, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, you were up in up in Leeds this week, up in Glasgow the week before, um, in, enjoying the yes. travelling life? Yes, and actually I'm off to Germany tomorrow, but that's for, that's for pleasure, not for... <laughs> though I will be seeing an, an opera, so... Slightly all over the place geographically at the moment, but all good. All good, 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 good. We've got a lot to get through this month, so we're going to crack on with our first item, which is the International Opera Awards shortlist. The self-styled Opera's Oscars will take place on the 29th of April at Sadler's Wells. You can view the full shortlist at operaawards.org, but just kind of having a scrolling through from a UK perspective, it's a very good year for the Royal Opera House. Nominations for Best Chorus, Best New Production for From the House of the Dead, Best Orchestra and Best World Premiere for Lessons in Love and Violence. Uh, nods as well for English Touring Opera, Garsington, Opera Holland Park, Glyndebourne, Opera Rara and Welsh National Opera. Uh, and a particular plug for New Sussex Opera, who've been nominated in the Best Rediscovery category for The Travelling Companion, which we mentioned on, on last month's pod. Uh, Lorna, fan of awards ceremonies? Oh, gosh, what an opening question. Um... Do you know, I, I think they're fun. I think they're fun for raising uh, a bit of buzz about the industry. I think mm. that's a really nice um, side effect of award ceremonies. Uh, they're not my favourite thing. I'm not the kind of person to tune into the BAFTAs and the Oscars. And, You're not and... staying up at two o'clock in the morning to watch the Oscars? No, no. not so much. I, I value sleep a little more than that. So, um, <laughs> uh, do you know, I, yes, it raises a, a really fun buzz around the industry. Absolutely. But um, I think it can be a bit reductive. Yeah, I think it's fair to say with something like this as well. I mean, with, with your film ceremonies, you can sit in the cinema, you can get a DVD and watch them all. With this, mm. obviously, the people kind of choosing the, the, the nominees have probably not seen every single company's production for the past year. So there's a little bit of politicking involved, perhaps, in some of these nominations. But I've never heard of politics happening in an award ceremony before, <laughs> David. That's a completely new concept to me. I'm sorry just to kind of, you know, uh, <laughs> put the cat amongst the pigeons here. Uh, Emma, anything from the past 12 months that's been a particular a highlight for you? Oh, I mean, I've seen some really fantastic things. Um, I think we might be talking about this later, but I saw I saw Porgy and Bess at ENO in the autumn mm. and was blown away because I'd, I'd seen a production of it about a decade ago and hadn't really, like, I, I was pretty much raised on Gershwin, so I think I went in when I was a teenager kind of expecting to be blown away, and it was a slightly dud production. <laughs> so then I went to the ENO one slightly hesitant and with uh, to be honest the, the moment Eric Green stepped on stage as Porgy it was just like one of the best things I've ever seen um and yes I'm surprised that's not had a nomination because I thought that was really rather fantastic yeah nothing at all actually for English National Opera we're going to be mm. talking about them quite a lot today yes, a lot. <laughs> um so I'm sure we'll, we'll come on to, to them a bit later the Opera Awards, uh, 29th of April at Sadler's Wells. BBC Radio 3 will also have highlights after the event. Uh, you can also go online to vote for your favourite singer of the year. So have your say 
uh, to, to one of the categories uh, in this year's awards. Now, moving on to Welsh National Opera. They've become the first of the big companies to announce their 1920 season. There'll be revivals of Rigoletto, Cunning Little Vixen, which will be the first production of an annual Welsh National Opera, Janacek, uh, a revival of The Marriage of Figaro as well. New productions of Carmen, directed by Joe Davies. Uh, a new Sicilian Vespers, which is the final instalment of their Verdi trilogy. A new double bill, Bluebeard, with Sabrin Turfel. Paired with The Nightingale by Stravinsky. Uh, that production is going to feature puppetry from the theatre company Blind Summit, which many of you will know as the company behind Anthony Bingella's uh, Madame Butterfly from, from ENO. There'll also be a new small-scale Cosi Fantuti touring to smaller regional venues in Wales. Um, now, Lorna, um, I've got to say there's there's not too much that's kind of grabbing me from that, that line-up. Um, last year, uh, one of my highlights of the year actually was uh, Welsh National Opera's War and Peace, which I saw in Oxford, which mm -hmm. was absolutely brilliant. Really uh, wonderful to kind of see a, a rare opera um, done to kind of that that scale. Um, fabulous performances. Um, there's there's nothing in this lineup which is which is particularly grabbing me. Anything pique your interest? There's, I suppose it's. Um... There's quite a lot of mainstream stuff, and I know that you have a particular penchant for little-known work, so I imagine that's probably not tickling your fancy in that respect. Um, highlights for me, just from reading through it, I don't have any kind of uh, inside information about what any of these are going to be like, but I'm really interested in seeing how the Carmen does. Um, yes. You mentioned Joe Davies, but also Leslie Travers is designing. Mm -hmm. uh, he's worked at Opera Gabrielle North. And Dalton's doing the costumes, so it will look Right, it's like the dream team, for, isn't it? It's yeah. <laughs> So, um, and then I've written down that it's also got um, lovely Phil Rhodes and lovely Anita Watson uh, singing. So both uh, of whom I know from productions at Opera North. Um, a Phil Rhodes' Escamillo is something that I would, um, you know, sell organs to buy tickets to see. So I would recommend that people do that. <laughs> not, uh, not sell organs, but buy tickets. Not the sell organs yeah. bit, but um, yeah, I don't... <laughs> I definitely uh, that's a that's a hot ticket for me. Phil Rhodes as Escamillo, I think, is is going to be quite uh, yeah, formidable. Um, and the only other thing I wrote down was um, I love this commitment to doing some Janáček operas. Um, Janáček isn't my personal favourite, but uh, we do quite a lot of it at Opera North because the the powers that be there quite like Janáček. Um, <laughs> and I think it's a really positive statement. It doesn't get bums on seats uh, in as much as a, a Figaro or a Carmen would. But um, I think if you're committing to do that in your programme, that's making quite a positive, bold statement about where your company is. And I think it's a lovely thing to be able to commit to a regular Janacek slot, because mm. I think that's Welsh saying we're in a good position, we can afford to take some risks. Yeah, and it is very much about that kind of scheduling different repertoire in a season, so you can take a bit of a risk with the Janacek if you chuck in a Carmen and a Figaro. Sure. And yeah. I, you know, we discussed it last month as well, it's being realistic about kind of some of those economic, as you said, bums on seats mm -hmm. realities um, of, of the programming. Um, and certainly Cunning Little Vixen is, 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 a, is, a, is a great um, opera, I think a really great, a sturdy one to open that kind of Janacek um, Absolutely, it's the Janacek favourite, isn't it? So yeah. it's 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 the big An one. Animals of farthing wood for, for yeah, grown ups. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Emma, anything there? Um, kind of taking your fancy? Well, I, I was going to talk about, uh, talk about the Carmen, but Lorna's done a fantastic Sorry. job. I, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, I've seen quite a lot of Joe Davies' uh, productions at all at Opera North. Um, I think her Figaro is fantastic. Um, her Redigal is just a beautiful and really really slick, um, clever production. Um, I mean, Carmen as a piece is is tricky uh, plot wise, and and there's there's this. I know a couple of months ago there was a small furore about someone. I think 
uh, of the company in Italy changing the ending or mm. planning on changing the ending. Oh yes, people have Ooh. people have done that a bit. Um, kind of Michaela gets more involved at the end and and things like that yeah. as well. Yeah. So and, and I always think having a having a female director direct um, a, a story that is so rooted around a very strong female character would always be very. I'm I'm always very interested in seeing how how you tackle that. One of the things that, that kind of took my fancy looking at this is, is the new Sicilian Vespers production, um, mainly because it says that it will use designer Raymond Bauer's Verdi machine for the set, and I just love the idea of a Verdi machine. <gasps> I know, I read that, yeah. and I thought, I wish I'd seen some of the previous ones. I, I think it's, they've, they've had this Verdi trilogy, um, and I think they've used this same contraption for all of the sets, um, but just the idea of kind of having a Verdi machine, a Verdi you, machine. you kind of plug it in, <laughs> and you, you're ready to Verdi. It puts me in mind of the opera scenes at the RNCM, which is where I did my postgrad. Um, there were these trellises, these white trellises that basically featured in every opera scene because yeah. they were I just I think every kind company of... has something that, right. you know. Stock. And stock. I was yeah. there. Just, hanging around. Yeah. I was there just a couple of weeks ago giving some coaching to some of the singers that are there now. And I mentioned the trellises in passing and one of them went, oh my gosh, the trellises. <laughs> so, you know, they are apparently still going strong and that's that's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, nice to see. Nice yeah. to see. Um, wonderful. Uh, something else that I'm going to surprise Lorna and Emma with, which Hooray. wasn't on the original um, agenda, Hooray. just to run through briefly, is uh, another season that's, that's been announced, which is Buxton's summer season, um, the Derbyshire Festival. Um, it's contained uh, quite a few interesting pieces this year, um, as well as a new production of Eugene Onyegin um, and uh, Offenbach's Orpheus by Opera della Luna. There's a, a world premiere of a new opera called Georgina, uh, which is a pastiche opera celebrating the life of Georgina Cavendish will include music by Soller, Storis, Mozart and Lindley. Um, there's a new one uh, to me completely by Antonio Caldara called Lucio Papirio Dittatore, my, uh, my very best Italian pronunciation, <laughs> um, a co-production with La Serenissima. Um, there'll also be a community opera by Alan Stevenson called The Orphans of Kumbu, which is an African chamber opera featuring pupils from local schools. So an incredibly diverse... Wow, hugely diverse. Uh, ...programme there. Some real sort of... Um, I don't know if they're hidden gems or not, because I haven't got the foggiest what what they are. But if you um, don't know what they are, David, you know, <laughs> um, we do not have a chance. <laughs> I, I look forward to seeing what Antonio Caldara is all, all about. And uh, and whilst I'm not a great fan of kind of pastiche operas, um, anything that combines stories, Mozart, Lindley Soller is is got firm marks with me. So yeah. um, uh, an exciting season coming up in in, in Buxton. All sorts of different things for for different people. One to put in your diaries for this uh, for this July, I believe. Absolutely. One to just go on holiday to Buxton for a week and try and catch everything. I mean, that sounds amazing. Yeah, as I did a couple of years ago. Stayed in Buxton for a couple of days. Got some Bakewell tart from Bakewell. Love it. Saw some operas. Bakewell um, tart or Bakewell pudding? Oh, it's gosh. very, very important which one you chose. I'm very sorry, people of Bakewell. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but it was it was tasty. I can tell you that. Okay. It was very tasty. <laughs> Now, before we move on, uh, I'd like to say a huge thank you to everyone who's already subscribed to OperaCast and rated us on iTunes, Spotify and SoundCloud. Uh, ratings and reviews really do help new listeners to find us, so please do take a moment to rate and review on your favourite podcast platform. A huge thank you as well to those of you who supported our crowdfund campaign to help us to grow OperaCast over the next six months. We've got some great rewards on offer for backers, including the opportunity to join us for a future recording or to join us on a future interview with a leading light of the opera world. Take a look in the show notes or visit crowdfunder.co.uk slash operacastpod if you'd like to support the podcast and donate. Now, on to what is arguably the hottest talking point of the past month, which has been the reignitement of English National Opera's policy of singing in English. Former music director Mark Wigglesworth, in an article in the Barktrack website, wrote that abandoning it would be a betrayal of the company's most valuable mission to perform opera in a way that can be understood by the largest number of people. 
What sparked most debate, however, was his comment that a more unspoken view is one thinks that singing in a foreign language keeps the riffraff away. I do believe a certain pleasure in cultural elitism exists, if only by a few. A really interesting article there by Mark and a few things to pick apart. Um, let's start with this debate of, of singing opera in English. Uh, Lorna, as a, as a performer, do you have a preference? Uh, I think uh, my my gut feeling is always that opera is a piece of drama, first and foremost. That's just my position. And so I think it needs to be understood. Um, and I think... Uh, there's a number of different ways of doing that. Um, obviously, the use of surtitles um, helps people. Some people find them distracting. Some people really love them. Um, I find a certain um, beauty in the Opera North policy, which seems to be to basically do original language, but something in uh, uh, a Slavic language tends to be done in English, and some because the Slavic languages are just that little bit more inaccessible. They're a bit Slavic. They're a bit yep. Slavic, yep. Um, and also anything comedic is generally done in English. Yeah, and I, I like that. I think that's a really good approach. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree about the, the the comedy point. I mean, there's it's always rather disappointing when you're in in, a, in an opera audience and you kind of laugh sort of 10 seconds before the actual kind of joke happens on stage you know yeah. you're losing something of the comic effect there I or think. even when there's a kind of unintentional comic moment so uh, I did a production of Clemenza di Tito once and at the start of act two the start of act two the bad thing that happens at the end of act one transpires not to have really had a huge effect and what happens is the very first line of the of act two basically says that and that comes up on the surtitle and the way that a surtitle worked it basically went everything's okay and um <laughs> as soon as that surtitle flashed up before Anya who's the character that sings it had finished the line the entire audience of course were kind of giggling to themselves because that's just so standard opera it's okay we had to have act two so we didn't actually kill everyone um so it can also have a undesired effect yeah. in a dramatic setup um I don't know what Emma thinks, but I, th I think ENO's policy of singing in English is is really important and needs to be protected. Definitely, I think it it really it works it works for them. It's it's one of like it's kind of the linchpin of that of their company. Yeah. I say, um, I I've been thinking about this quite a lot because I'm in the middle of prepping um, Dialogue of the Carmelites, and um, I came across this really interesting thing that um, Poulenc Poulenc still not quite sure how to pronounce his name <laughs> uh, uh, he so he wrote it in French and then found out that the the premiere was actually going to be in Italy I think at La Scala so therefore he then said well it needs to be performed in the language of the people mm. so the the premiere of what we think of is this very French piece was in Italian and then they did it somewhere in France and then when it went to the States it was in English and he was very much for if you know he wanted to yeah he wanted to be to be understood as much as possible and and a, a way to do that is you sing it in the language of that you assume most of your audience are, are fluent in yeah um and another thing that i again i've been i've been thinking about the the very first opera that i saw was was an opera of production um being being a nottingham lass they toured to the theater royal and i was 16 17 I went along to see um, Cosi Fantuti and it was in English and it just transfixed me from the start. And I cannot necessarily guarantee that if I'd gone to see it and it was in Italian, I would have had that same immediate, mm. this is amazing and I need to see more of this. So As a genre, you mean? Very, very personal view. 
like you kind of saw that and thought oh this opera thing is fascinating more of that please well yeah definitely yeah. definitely more of that because yeah. by that point you know I've, I've seen I've seen quite a lot of musicals um and a fair amount of Gilbert and Sullivan so having people burst into song on stage was not a foreign concept <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at all um but yeah and then I think then the next thing I then saw I, I want to say was it was either Figaro or Thieving Magpie and that was in um Italian but kind of having to, sometimes you need especially for maybe younger audiences you do need to kind of be welcomed in with something they can understand immediately to then go okay if you like that maybe try this um it's not necessarily in English but if you enjoyed the music and you enjoy the drama and everything and we will give you surtitles then you're kind of ready to take like, the next step yeah I completely agree. I think it's about that balance as you said you know I, I think there, there, are, there are lots of operas not written in English which you do lose something of of the music and the way the the, the words sound if you do it in translation but certainly as an audience member trying to have that immediate connection, particularly if you're a, a first-time audience member, mm. I can see how having a production in English really is a, a wonderful kind of gateway into it. And I think as well, we'll, we'll come on later about some of Eno's policies in terms of trying to get new audiences into the building, that actually English really is kind of a great way to... to to get people yeah, involved. To get people in, yeah. I think so. Emma touched on a thing there about, um, you know, she'd seen some musical theatre, so the idea of people singing their emotions wasn't alien to her. But I think if you break opera down into its constituent parts, it can be... Um, there's a lot going on. <laughs> so if you are a first-time opera goer, you know, you've got to deal with this concept of people singing their emotions, which is weird anyway. You've got to deal with uh, the fact that in in most cases there's no spoken text. You know, recit is, is a whole different world that you don't find outside opera. Um, and then if you add in that they're singing in a foreign language that you don't understand, even if there's surtitles, um, you know, there's a lot going on there. And I think certainly from an accessibility point of view, um, Ian are doing, uh, you know, sterling work in having that option for people that just don't want to pile it all on at once. <laughs> mm. what, what I will say, though, is, and uh, this, this might be the singer's fault more than anything else, but I, I do see quite a lot of operas in English and most of the time I have to read the surtitles anyway because I can't understand. <gasps> I'm so glad singing. you said that. I wrote this down. <laughs> So the thing that was referenced in the ENO article was this interview with Felicity Palmer, who obviously mm. I have the greatest of respect for <laughs> because she's a stalwart of the industry. The caveat, <laughs> caveat. I really don't think her comments are helpful. And the reason I say that um, is something that's very fresh in my memory is doing... Uh, we should just say that, that Felicity Palmer said that back oh, in the I'm old sorry, yes. back in the old days we could all be understood. I think. Sure, and it was kind of like, <laughs> was the summary of she, what she said. Oh gosh, there was, a, there was a sentence which I will try and find, um, which just kind of riled me. Um, but the the issue is that in some productions, I've got Merry Widow fresh in my mind, yeah, and it's you know there is spoken dialogue, and. Whether this decision is a good one or not, you know, often in the spoken dialogue with the Parisian characters, they put on a French accent and they do all their dialogue like this, which is really difficult to understand. So that the decision, I believe, was made to surtitle Widow for that reason. Um, and I think they were putting funny accents on. because they were putting funny accents on and it kind of helps people to keep track of what's going on. And especially if you've got a piece where lots of different people are singing different texts at the same time, um, it can also help people separate the wheat from the chaff in that as well. I'm going to try and so, find what she said. Is this the, the, the widow that's just been at Opera North? Yeah. Yes, which, full disclosure, I worked on and Lorna was in. Um, I, I had no I involvement. Had... I'm just going to put that. <laughs> Did you come and see I it? I saw it. Yeah, yeah there we go. Okay, 
Um, I think because they, um, when it was a new production in 2010 with a new translation that had been written specifically for Opera North by the wonderful Kit Hesker Harvey, who his um, Lord has heard me talk about this at length. His translation of the Magic Flute, I think, is just a thing of beauty. I've performed it. It's great. It's, uh, it's a great translation. <laughs> um, and the um, the director from Mary Widow felt that when we when we came back to it in 2018, um, that he felt that because Kit's um, because it was such a this is the widow translation it was so so slick and so beautiful that he didn't mind that it was surtitled because he actually wanted people to get some of that text because come quite thick and fast and it's very very funny and definitely when I took my parents to see it um in 2018 and they have seen it in 2010 my father in particular said that he felt that he got much more from it because he could see see the text so we didn't set out of the dialogue it was just the um just the music yeah i found the um this the Palmer quote <laughs> quotation sorry she says to have surtitles when they're singing in english is nothing short of scandalous well that's lovely i mean that's you know <clears throat> i'm not sure it's a helpful quotation I, I i think you know we're all about accessibility and if people are a bit overwhelmed by what is an overwhelming art form maybe just having the words on a TV screen to the side of the stage isn't the worst thing in the world. It isn't the worst, yeah, sort of, um, isn't the isn't the worst problem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and now a, a couple more people have kind of weighed in on, on this argument. I think most interestingly, Martin Brabins, who's the current music director, um, last year said that, that we sing in English and it has ever been thus. It's our policy and I have to be happy with it. Um, it's not a glowing endorsement, is it? <laughs> he said on a case-by-case basis, there could be room for change and there may be a review in the future. Um, so, um, yeah, sort of sli- slightly vague, but kind of slightly threatening sort of language there from, from, from him. <laughs> I think he's just hedging his bets and keeping yeah, everybody yeah, happy. Bojkowski also weighing in um, with, with slightly less sort of hesitant language, saying that uh, it just smells slightly provincial in the world of subtitles singing in English. Uh, people being able to research what the thing means uh, means that you don't need them anymore. People may disagree with me, but I just don't want to hear Italian opera in English, and I don't think most of the audience do. Um, I think we'll leave this this debate there, mm. but um, you, you can mm. think for yourselves. You can think for yourselves. Um, now, going on to the other part of what, what Mark had to say, and this whole debate has been given a bit more traction and attention than it usually would by the intervention of, of David, Mitchell, David the, Mitchell, the actor and comedian, yeah. um, who wrote about it in his, his article in the Observer magazine. Um, now, he does start by saying that he's not an opera goer. Um, he doesn't particularly like it or, or is ever kind of involved with it. Um, but he's coming at it from the perspective that whilst Mark's right, he's actually kind of got the definition of riffraff quite wrong. Yeah. Um, that actually that this is really an argument between different types of opera audiences. There's no real riffraff in E&O. Um, he writes, uh, this is really interesting, um, it isn't about class, it's about tribalism. The riffraff here are people who see themselves as opera buffs, but whom the anti-translation opera buffs would say aren't proper opera buffs because they don't like opera enough to sit through it when the words are gobbledygook. <laughs> or aren't proper buffs because they haven't troubled to learn Italian and German. Now, if, if that's the case, I've not troubled to learn it Italian and, and German, and I'm I'm definitely amongst the the riffraff of the audiences there. <laughs> yeah, full um, on riffraff here as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I I think for, for me, opera does seem to have a, a bit of a problem that some of its its gatekeepers, some artists, critics, administrators, audiences, that they they quite like the fact that they know all the jargon. Um, mm. That you know, and that anyone who doesn't is sort of I- I- excluded. You know, if you don't know the seventy two different facts, and you don't know, you know. 
uh, I don't know whether it's a soprano or, or mezzo or you know all, you know you don't know all of these kind of words and jargon yes. that, that somehow you are you're people, kind of people that go to the ring and know all of the light motifs. I'm like, well, I tip, <laughs> I tip my hat to you because that is amazing. But and I think it's fair to say that... there's, there's there's nothing wrong with that kind of audience member that, no, that knows everything. Not. But there's it's, there's a kind of a bit of an attitude from some people that that if you don't know all of those things, then you know why kind of you, why you even then get it? out, you know, go home, you yeah. know, study it, whatnot. And then it kind of it does go back to this kind of you know surtitle sort of thing, as as kind of David Mitchell was 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 saying slightly flippantly. But you know those audiences that that do speak other languages that have spent years and years learning what everything means and can do it and off by heart and those people that five minutes before are reading the plot on wikipedia you know and that there's a bit of a battle between these audiences lorna you've you're pulling a face <laughs> no no i i just uh i i find this whole thing so frustrating and um at times laughable um i just you know, we had the article about the the keeping the riffraff away, the the opinion that some people maybe think that, and and I don't doubt that they do. Um, but when I was reading through the article, something that came to mind was um, there are certain TV personalities that everyone loves to hate, and because everyone keeps talking about them, they don't go away. And I kind of feel like, I think if we keep focusing on the five percent of the audience who are perhaps quite happy to be kind of quite snobbish about the whole thing then we're not going to progress as an industry they're going to exist whether we want them to exist or not and they're going to get what they want to get out of it and if they want to dress in their finery for first night or last night or whatever that's part of the experience for them then fine let them have it like if that's their enjoyment if part of their enjoyment is is you know self-grandizing then do you know what let them have it but if we keep talking about it we're yeah. not going to move on. That segues beautifully into it. And I have another point that I, when I was reading about it, um, a um, an opera singer who I've uh, I've met a couple of times, he's a lovely man, um, Edmund Dannon, who uh, put this on Twitter off the back of David Mitchell's article, which I'll just read, which I just found, which is, um, whenever opera breaks into the wider media, it always seems to be about some elitism or accessibility argument. Mm. Can we just shout, it's awesome, and you can go for less than £20 yes. again and again, <laughs> rather than getting drawn into this crap. Yeah. And when I saw that, I was like, yes, Ed, yes, yeah. that's exactly... Do you know what, or it's not awesome, and or it's not awesome, and you're going to hate it, that's fine as well. Yeah. Um, let's not just obsess about making everybody love opera because we happen to like it. It's Everything is personal taste, everything yeah. is about the individual's experience of an art form. Um, I love David Mitchell's comment about comparing it with indie bands. This yes, kind yes. of thing that you're not allowed oh, to be a fan. Electric, like, you weren't there, man. You weren't three, there yeah. when weren't I saw them in that really <laughs> gritty pub in 1987. You know, you either like music or you don't. And I just think if we just get off everyone's backs and allow everyone to enjoy it in a way that works for them. Yeah, and that and that comment about being able to say, you know, if you like opera, great. If you don't, fine. It is yeah. is um is 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 so important. You know, I I kind of keep going back to this this analogy you know i'm a big football fan but i don't pretend that every football team's great every match is brilliant but i think as as someone who likes opera you you often are quite defensive trying to pretend that every opera is wonderful every time you go you're going to be absolutely blown away you yeah. know sometimes you're going to some some operas are crap yeah some performances are absolute rubbish yeah and if you pick a bad one you know i'm sorry but there are some that are great um but it's kind of a justification as, as you said because every time it gets into the the mainstream um you know it kind of it picks on these particular topics we don't have many opportunities to talk more widely about about opera and um, that we end up just kind of uh, defending it um and, and really um 
kind of coming back to these, you know, kind of same sorts of arguments because they're the ones that only ones that punctuate through. And it's very reductionist. It, 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 yeah. You know, if, if opera is always a conversation about elitism, it's not a conversation about the particular nuanced approach of that director on what is a difficult opera, what presents different challenges and how that director has circumnavigated that and come up with an amazing piece of art at the end of it. Um you know, opera is niche. Opera is a weird art form. It's not it's not for everyone. You know, I really hate football, you know, <laughs> but I love rugby. But well, thankfully it's a mainstream sport, so we don't have to justify it. Fine. You know. Yeah, but then some people are super passionate about, you know, badminton. And for those people to be like trying to knock on everyone's doors, making them like badminton is a is a road to nowhere. And I, I do think sometimes we need to just back off a bit and be like, do you know what? I enjoy it. Maybe come along or don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we're going down a really weird track here with badminton, so um, yeah. <laughs> I think we'll say that this is a bait that we'll, that we'll rumble roll on. Roll and roll. Yeah. Now, another of English National Opera's former music directors is Sean Edwards, currently in Leeds, having recently made her debut with Opera North with Katja Cabanova. I had the great pleasure of sitting down with Sean earlier this week to discuss Katja and her work as an international artist, and I began by asking her about her first visit to the city in 1984 when she won the inaugural Leeds Conducting Competition. I had been a student at the Royal Northern College of Music. I studied horn there, actually, first, but I also was doing conducting as a sideline because it was just something I loved doing, and I used to get friends together and put on concerts. And I then won a scholarship to actually stay at the Royal Northern and specialise, if you like, in conducting, and my teachers then were Timothy Rainish and Sir Charles Groves. And very much in Britain um, at the time, learning conducting seemed to be do-it-yourself with a bit of a nudge from people like Sir Charles, um, saying, you know, go on, keep going. Um, not a lot of training. And I felt very much that I needed much more disciplined approach to my conducting at a certain point. And I was lucky enough to be sent to the Soviet Union, where I very much wanted to study. And at the end of the first year with this marvellous teacher, Ilya Alexandrovich Musin, um, I saw that the Leeds Conductors Competition was coming up, and I thought, maybe I could give it a go. Um, and he wrote in very lovely Russian to David Lloyd-Jones, who was then uh, the head of Opera North. Um, and David, I knew, had been trained in Russian um, in the 1950s and was very, very keen on Russian opera and so on. And so he got this lovely handwritten letter from my teacher saying, Sean Edwards hasn't had much experience, but would you consider accepting her to try the competition? And he said yes. So I came over for this week at the end of my first year of study in Soviet Union. And I remember conducting somebody in the orchestra, actually reminded me, I conducted without a baton. And I'd learnt the pieces we were asked to prepare um, in Russia. And it was a complete unknown to me, but it was a marvellous experience and marvellous with the orchestra, which is the Orchestra of Opera North. Mm. And some of the players are still in the orchestra, <laughs> which is fantastic. Yes, yeah. They have eight players, I think, who are still <laughs> there since the very beginning. It was wonderful. Um, and initially winning it, um, you know, I went straight back to the Soviet Union, actually, and continued with my studies and did a second year of study there. Um, I had a, a concert with the orchestra back here. And I remember coming back to Leeds and conducting the Enigma Variations, which must have been quite a strange performance because I'd learnt it with my teacher in Russia who'd never heard of Elgar and had never, um, you know, done any um, anything like Enigma Variations. I remember him saying at one point, you know, Sean, this music is almost as good as some Tchaikovsky. And I thought, wow. High praise Yes, we yeah. must have got there. But so I came back and I must have done a very strange sort of Russian-tinged performance of Enigma. <laughs> um, 
And I remember there was a big dinner afterwards and the then Lord Mayor of Leeds, who was a marvellous man in his 70s with about three teeth and his wife, um, they painting a were, of Leeds in 1984. Well, they you? were fantastic people. <laughs> um, and I remember him saying at one point, you'll always be welcome in Leeds, love. And I thought, that's so marvellous. I just did feel embraced, you know, by the people of Leeds. Really, at that time, the competition was very new. Of course, it was the first one, and there wasn't a great deal of follow-up immediately, but absolutely typical of Simon Rattle, who hadn't seen me conduct. But he said, there's a young conductor, won a competition, get her in. And so I was invited to do some concerts with the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. Mm. And at that time, they were still doing what they call run-out concerts. Um, And so on a rainy Wednesday afternoon, I remember going to Sutton Coldfield, to conduct the CBSO in a programme of Mozart. This would be during the following year and another one in Kidderminster. And they went fairly well, so they invited me to do some concerts in their um, summer proms in Birmingham season. Um, And things slowly gathered pace from there. So then an agent got interested and um, then, in a way, the sort of classic... uh, cancellation moment happened and it was actually Simon Rattle whose wife was unwell he was supposed to be doing a production of Mahogany the Scottish opera by this marvellous opera by Kurt Weill and his little boy only three years old and his wife unwell family in London it just was all too much for Simon and he cancelled they'd already started rehearsing in Scotland and um, for Scottish opera it was between Oliver Nusson, who wasn't really free, but would love to do the date, and they knew him and would love to have had him. And me, who was completely free, but untried. And to, you know, all credit to them, they decided to go with the young conductor. And um, in a way that, you know, propelled me into the opera world. And the rest, as they say, is history. Well, funny enough, and um, perhaps I shouldn't say this, but as a young horn player in Manchester... Opera was this kind of completely other world. And I know anybody who's been in a music college will know that, um, sadly, often is the case that the instrumentalists will sit in one area of the canteen and the singers are in a completely (laughs) different area, um, talking about completely different things. And we just got to be each other as different animals. And that certainly had been my experience at first. And although I had actually conducted several operas on smaller scale level before Mahagoni. Um, I think I hadn't really got the opera bug until then and working with professional singers and David Alden, um, wonderful director, and then had this full-on experience, albeit a rather terrifying one, because I literally flew up to Glasgow and started rehearsing the next morning on a piece I didn't know, you know, and was learning every night, you know, the next scene to do. And so... Yeah, it was, it was very, very challenging, but, you know, marvellous experience. I don't think, uh, funnily enough, because now I, I teach conducting at the mm. Royal Academy of Music, and I've always had a few students, actually, largely because of this marvellous training I had in Russia. And people, you know, fascinated to know what uh, Musin taught me, and, and I've always been um, eager, in a way, to hand that legacy on. Um, but, you know, I'm seeing these young conductors now go in to their first professional dates and thinking it's never something you're going to be prepared for, actually. No matter how many things you've done before, um, in a way, the step up for young conductors from being you know, a good student to being a young professional is enormous. And I think now orchestras and opera houses 
understand that a bit better and are much more supportive, actually. And I'm glad to see that of young conductors. Um, but for me, with my teacher as well, you know, way back there in what was Leningrad, not on the end of a phone, um, it was a lonely period of time. And I think looking back, things did move too fast in a way. And, um, you know, I'd love to rewind and say, yes, you know, I, I should have at some point said, look, let me slow down for a minute and, and really, you know, do more study. But of course, at the same time, um, you know, life moves on. And I um, then uh, had a wonderful uh, husband and small son. And the idea actually of, of staying in London and doing uh, work with one company um, at the time um, with ENO seemed like a very good idea rather than lots of travelling. Um, but of course, you know, things never quite work out how you imagine. That's a good question. I think um, I, so this was back in 2013. Um, I was approached actually by uh, some people who said, look, this position's going. And it, it is part time, although, um, of course, it's These always far more, <laughs> yeah, exactly, um, than, than one imagines. Um, and of course, if you want to make something and, and you know, you, you are interested in the students, you want to be there more for them perhaps than the hours um, that you're actually paid for. And that's fine. Um, I think I uh, just felt that it would be lovely to be involved with an institution. Um, and what I've discovered through uh, the contacts with all the staff there is that um, it's wonderful to have that richness of other people's experience all around you. I think as a conductor, often we're like ships passing in the night and the uh, tremendous burden and responsibility actually of the hours you spend on your own learning scores and preparing for your next project, something you very much do on your own. Mm. Um, and then you're in a rehearsal studio with fantastic people around you, but you are in the role of conductor. And being at the Royal Academy, it just felt like the right time perhaps to step back a little bit from what could otherwise be just lots and lots more uh, traveling and wonderful dates, but not feeling that you have any kind of center or central focus perhaps. Yeah. And this has given me that possibility to have that wonderful um, little bit of uh, contact and focus uh, with other people on another level and that that's been very enriching actually it's such a fascinating question this which I think is one of the reasons that keeps me um, you know working with young conductors or conductors of any age actually who want to go forward in their careers um, I think when I'm looking at auditions uh, or people send me videos of themselves you know what do you think Sean and all that um I suppose the two things you're looking for are is there a basic level of confident comp competence and confidence actually but competence um but more interestingly what do these people want from the music and the players do they want something you know some people very good technical conductors you can see the performance going along very smoothly but What's in their eyes that's actually really asking the players for something above and beyond perhaps just what's on the page? Because I think for us as conductors, um, like directors as well, um, what we're trying to do is look beyond those little black dots on the page uh, or lifting them off the page in a way that makes them three-dimensional and that the sound and the quality of what's happening with the orchestra or the singers or the orchestra and the singers um, is taking us into realms that is 
far beyond just what uh, you see as a sort of map or instruction sheet. And I guess in young conductors or, in, say, people of any age who are thinking of going forward in conducting, um, if they've got that desire to be creative, then you think, yeah, you know, it doesn't matter if the hands are a bit chaotic, we can fix that. I think conducting competitions on the outside can seem quite arbitrary and um, sometimes the decisions of juries or whatever seem ridiculous and, and, you know, the whole event of them seems quite a sort of cheap way to find people who are perhaps interesting. Um, but I think there is another side to them which is very important. If you think about it, um, in Britain, for example, we've got a fantastic amount of student and amateur music making going on um, at all levels for choirs and orchestras and all the other sides of um, music making as well. But there is this very big step up from that level of working to working with our professional orchestras. And competitions are a great way of young conductors in this case really focusing their thoughts and their study and what they're actually doing with their hands as well as how they're working with the orchestra um, in terms of their ideas and so on, um, so that they begin to understand perhaps what's required of them at the next step up um, at professional level. So I think when students ask me, you know, shall I go in for this competition or that competition, I'm always saying to them, well, what is the music you're being asked to learn for this? Because in a way, even if you don't get past the first round, the investment you are going to make in the mm. scores you're going to prepare is the most valuable thing you're going to do because you're going to do this learning, putting yourself, if you like, under the microscope because you'll be imagining, you know, whoever it is that's looking at you. Is Simon Rattle going to be, you know, looking at what you're doing and listening to what you're doing? And are they going to think that's any good? And when you start to apply that kind of pressure mm. to yourself, I think it can help people develop very quickly, actually. And then, you know, yes, in some ways, competitions can be fickle or you might miss somebody who's really good because they didn't have a good day or the repertoire didn't quite suit them. But I think now as well, um, for example, with the Flick competition, um, whoever's selected to win will be with the London Symphony Orchestra for a year. And the orchestra themselves recognise that it's no good just giving that young conductor lots of con concerts and then go, oh, well, they weren't that good after all. You know, they want to nurture people and they want to give them opportunities that fit where they are, if you like, in their development. And I think in that way, it can be really good. And all young conductors need exposure to professional level orchestras. So if you win a competition and there are some concerts somewhere with orchestras somewhere professional, that's already a wonderful thing and, and will start you off on that journey. So I think they can be very useful. I think it's great that this question is now suddenly the hot topic. I know a lot of orchestras are now actually getting in touch saying, have you got any women conductors? We need we need somebody for this or that, you know, to sort of do our gender balance correctly, whatever. Um, I think um, what I see when I'm doing auditions at the Academy for the master's course, for example, um, is a lot of very good women applying. Often the problem at master's level when they do the auditions is that they're a couple of years behind the men in terms of their development and their experience. And I think a lot of the time it's this old thing that people say, you know, if if there's a promotional appointment um, available in an office 
and there are 10 criteria um, that are advertised for this new position. Um, whereas the boys will maybe just have two out of 10 and they'll still apply, the girls will wait till they've got nine out of 10 before they apply. And I think that very much is what happens at university level, for example. Mm. Girls are a little bit slower to put themselves forward to do things, and they often then are doing things in their mid-20s and so on and onwards. Um, and that's absolutely great, but they often aren't therefore quite as sharp and as ready. I'm looking at people at the academy level, for example, that I can feel confident of putting in front of um, the academy orchestras, which are full of fantastic young players, um, you know, after a term or so, I need to feel that they're technically ready and confidence-wise as well. And so, actually, at the Academy, we now have a pre-Masters uh, short course that's funded by um, the Sorrel Foundation. Uh, and I've just completed our first one. We um, invited 12 women to come to a three-day masterclass and from that we actually selected five who have just done three short weekends with me with ensemble and pianists and so on and so on where we've discussed all these things and just hopefully um, getting them to understand sort of where the bar is that they need to hit mm. because interestingly none of them want to be thought of as female conductors they yes, just want to be yes. conductors and none of them want to gain any kind of place at a um, conservatoire just because they're a woman. They want to absolutely compete on a level playing field with the boys, which is fantastic. So um, so I think just the fact that there is now an awareness hopefully will also get these young women to themselves up their game and realise, come on, you know, compete straight away and um, don't hold back and wait till you think you're good enough. Just do it because by doing it, you will, you know, get there. I want to have that sort of... Uh, sense that I'm not going to discriminate at master's level. So if you want to come to this course, get going early, you know, really push yourself and I will be here to support you and, you know, encourage you as much as I can. Mm. Um, and I do have one woman at, on the two-year course now, which is fantastic. Um, and in fact, my predecessor at the academy had a lot of women in his classes, which was fantastic. But he had a three-year course with about nine students and could take quite a wide range of people. Mm. Unfortunately, because the academy is uh, such a busy place and podium time is so limited, I only now have four students, two first and two second year MA students. So I can't, uh, what can I say, take uh, people a little bit on spec. I have mm. to actually just take the people who are scoring top top dog, if you like, and... Um, yeah, hopefully more women will see what they have to do and absolutely compete with the men. I think it is a reality for most conductors, actually. Um, it's lovely to work in Britain, I must say. Um, it's interesting when you're in Germany, particularly, to realise what a huge music scene there is there compared to here. Um, and so suddenly you realise, no wonder they've got 160-odd orchestras, you know, it's a very large country. And and also, I think, realising that in the German-speaking countries, classical music is to them, perhaps, what Shakespeare is to us. Mm. In other words, music and opera, and to a certain extent ballet, are very central to their cultural traditions. 
in a way that I feel sometimes in Britain, um, we're a tiny bit removed. You know, we've still got all these stupid things here about, oh, music's only for classical music's only for toffs or it's a upper class thing. Or sadly, now that people, again, are having to pay for children's music lessons, you know, mm. that you can only do it if you've got money. Absolutely. And we've got to blast through that because, of course, it's for everybody. And, you know, we are making opera at Opera North right now for everybody. And that's very, very important. Um, but I think that uh, there is that sense of relaxation almost with the art form in um, Germany and Austria. Well, what's very funny, actually, I'm just talking to uh, the assistant conductor on uh, Katia at Opera North, who's uh, lovely young conductor, Jonathan Bloxham, who I've known for many years, actually. And he started working in Germany. And we were both laughing because in Britain, generally you have perhaps the rehearsals the day before a concert and then you give the concert. In Germany, you fly over there on the Sunday, you rehearse Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and you give a concert on the Friday and Gosh, maybe another one what, on what the luxury. Saturday. Exactly. <laughs> and the orchestras only play one programme a week. And we were laughing because, of course, in Britain, that means you've got to be incredibly quick fire with your rehearsal to get everything done that the orchestra needs and your um, artistic ideas and imagination and so on all has to be absolutely sort of firing on all cylinders. Um, uh, whereas in Germany, it's the orchestras start from further back, but there's a more organic process through which they learn the music and work with you. So there is a very different process, actually, to what you're doing. And very funny, actually, we were laughing because... I remember some early experiences in Germany where you get to the Friday morning and you're going to run through the programme. And in Britain, quite often, you won't even play through the whole programme on the morning of the concert or the afternoon of the concert. You'll do what they call top and tail, where you'll just do the difficult bits or, you know, whatever, or something that didn't work yesterday. Um, so I said to the orchestra, you know, do you really want to run through the whole oh, yes, you know, we must run through the whole programme, you know, and then they'll do it again in the evening. And so a very different way of working in that way. So for us, I think, conductors, it is challenging to meet the orchestras in their different contexts mm. and perhaps, you know, work in a way that is fruitful for them and you. Uh, so I think in that respect, um, yeah, there are a lot of challenges, but... As far as actually the music and what you're trying to achieve, I think, um, again, with every orchestra, it's a little bit different. Sometimes um, they will offer you a very, you know, personal sound that is the orchestra's sound. Mm -hmm. And um, you either take that and work with it and celebrate what they've got, as it were, or, you know, you try to change it to some image of the sound that you've got. Um, and you can see conductors with very different viewpoints on that. Um, for myself, I think I'm one of those who really enjoys working with what an orchestra is going to offer and realising also that, you know, so often the players know the environment that they're going to be playing in. I was just thinking very much this just now. So I've just been working with the Orchestra of Opera North and the orchestral rehearsals are in the Howard Assembly Rooms. Yeah. But, of course, the stage and orchestra and the dress rehearsal and the performances will all be in the Grand Theatre. And there are some things that are a bit odd in the assembly rooms and I'm thinking, mm, should I be working on that? And then I think, actually, I bet that they're doing that because they know when they get into the theatre, 
that's what's going to be necessary. So you have to trust the orchestra, I suppose. In Absolutely. That so I'm trying to sort of judge, you know, where I very much need to ask them to do something in a different way because it's Janacek and we want certain things and where I need to understand that, yeah, that's a given because that's where the seating requires that this mm, happens and this really happens. Yeah. So for conductors all the time, I think we're trying to do the best to get the resources of the orchestra to um, uh, work in their best way, uh, but also sort of tailor the approach to the situation. Well, it's a, yeah, you're asking a very interesting question. So um, just working with the orchestra of Opera North now, I must say I've had wonderfully generous rehearsals and we have been able to go into great detail and talk about sound and we will continue to do that now actually. Um, next week we've got our rehearsals in the theatre and we'll really start to work on the colours and the sound that are going to work with the staging and so on. But you're absolutely right, if you work with any of the, um, particularly the London orchestras, where you're lucky even to have more than one rehearsal, Basically, what they're saying is, if you're not the music director, don't lift the bonnet of the car and try to sort of fiddle about with the engine. You know, right, we yes, are yes. offering you a wonderful machine here. You can just ask, you know, to turn left a bit, turn right a bit, or, you know, accelerate a bit more on this. But don't mess with the workings of they it. They know the direction that they're Exactly, going. exactly. And so very much you're accepting, if you like, as you say, you know, what they're offering. And this is where I think having a good conducting technique is absolutely essential because this is where you can actually influence the sound and you can get a lot of results without even having to say anything. And I think orchestras really appreciate conductors that can do that. And I think more and more young conductors need to have that real um, confidence in their technical skills so that they can get results very quickly, don't need to talk, and then anything fine that they need to, you know, fine-tuning to talk about vibrato or something like this, they can then have time to do. Mm. But they haven't spent ages trying to get some corner right because they can't quite steer the orchestra through it. So I think, um, yeah, it's a, a combination of being able to communicate non-verbally, as it were, a lot. Um, and in some ways almost enjoying the fact that the orchestra will provide you with something that's pretty much finished and then you just steer them to whichever destination we're going to. So I think the first thing is that uh, the process in opera certainly goes back a couple of years before you're even starting the rehearsals. So at Opera North, fantastic casting director Christine Chibnall will assemble a cast that she has known and seen the singers in different contexts and heard them do different roles and perhaps the roles that she's inviting them to come and sing as well. And she will put together a group of people that she thinks will work together well and that the size of the voices all balances. So by the time I'm working with them in the rehearsal room, um, already you've got a team of people that hopefully will play well together, if you like, and match each right. other. Then, um, of course, the way singers are going to produce the sound, that's them. And so I think you, uh, if you like, you... Um, mess with that at, at your and more importantly their peril yeah, absolutely, yes. but having said that um wonderful thing about singers is that they are incredibly imaginative people and very very interested in how the role that they're working on is going to develop and so i mean in this process for example on katya kabanova with uh, tim albury it's been a wonderful process of discovery for all of us to work on the Anna check together and as Tim is asking the singers to 
do a line in a certain way. In other words, you know, I want this mood to be very down or I want her to feel at this moment that there is hope at the end of the tunnel or whatever. Um, we can musically actually then explore what that might be. Mm. So in a way, um, one of the thrilling things about working on opera is this uh, dual sort of approach, if you like, with the singers to how a character's uh, development is made real on stage through their acting, but also the singing. And that is where they can then modify their voice a lot, you know, and you can go from something where they can sing with almost sort of no colour in the sound to something that blooms and is fantastic and, yeah, and everything in between. So at that, you know, point of discussion, you've got all the possibilities open to you. One of the things that many people say about Opera North, and I'm thrilled to say is absolutely true, is it's such a friendly company. So other conductors I've talked to say, oh, yeah, you'll love, it, love working there. And it's true, the staff and the general environment is incredibly supportive. And you get the feeling that everybody just wants all the pieces that they're doing, all the projects to be good. Mm -hmm. And for the people doing them to feel nurtured and supported and that you know when the singers do go out there on that stage which is you know for even the most experienced singers a very can I say um, exposing moment that they have got the full support of the company behind them and so I think that is a wonderful thing um, quite often you work in a company where, um, you know, you do feel like you're left swinging in the wind a little bit or, you know, something isn't quite right and you can't fix it. Whereas here, there are people all the time helping you to fix things. Lovely discussions about how the music can go, you know, forward and even better. And um, I'll need help now once we're in the uh, theatre with people listening in back in the theatre because I'm in the pit, obviously. I get a very skewed idea of the balance between the singers and um, the orchestra. Um, but the staff will be there saying, you know, a mm, little bit core anglais, more core anglais there. And, you know, violins are much too loud here for the singer, but we need them more here, you know, and, and we'll then, you know, sort it all out. So it's a wonderfully collaborative environment. And uh, I think that's really to be celebrated. I'm very, very pleased to be doing Kati Kabanova, which is a piece I've done a couple of times before, actually. Mm. It's lovely to approach it in English, which I haven't done before. So that in itself, for me, makes it very fresh. And... To work with a director like Tim Albury, who is all the time looking at what is it, what does the character really mean at this moment? What are they actually saying when they're singing this? How does the English work? And us as musicians also trying to get the English to sound as natural as possible, because, of course, the Czech stresses are often different to the English ones. But, you know, really trying to make the whole thing um, as direct an experience as possible. Um, so... I think from that point of view, we've just all got ourselves involved with this wonderful story. Um, I keep saying, in a way, it's a bit like EastEnders, you know, it's just <laughs> one big domestic row after another all the way through, ending, of course, sadly, in, you know, tragedy, but with incredibly sort of uplifting sense of um, who this young woman, Katya, is and all the things that one should celebrate in her life. So, uh, yeah, I think I think we've just all been immersed in in how to make the piece and and not worrying too much about what's gone on before. Mm. Um, I think it's very interesting to see people's moods change. Actually, I remember this so clearly from as a young conductor seeing. Um, I remember working at Glyndebourne when uh, the company were doing Porgy and Bess with Simon Rattle. I wasn't involved in it, but I remember the singers arriving on the first couple of days, and everyone was, "Hey, how are you? Great!" and then. 
as that piece progressed, people got quieter and quieter and more and more sort of introvert. And I think in Katya as well, I've noticed that, um, you know, we all go through phases where we do feel very thoughtful and it does bring the temperature down a lot when it is uh, quite a dark piece. But then there are these marvellous characters um, in the opera, Decoy and Kabanika, who are appalling parodies of frightful behaviour, actually. Um, and the two singers singing those roles are hilarious. So we often have, you know, tremendous hoots of laughter. And um, yeah, so there is a, a quite a, a lot of good old black humour going on as well. I think I have blocked it out so far, although Ed Gardner and I, we met actually to do with something else um, earlier on in uh, the season. And we were laughing at this, you know, that we were both going to be literally rehearsing parallel during this, although he's having to do his in check. Ha ha. <laughs> so, uh, but um, I think uh, the two companies, you know, will produce very different approaches uh, to the piece. And it, it is weird. I remember one year, some years ago, because um, the companies are supposed to talk to each other, actually. And, you you know, not program the same opera all around the country at the same time. Um, but I remember there were five Carmens one year, and you just think, how not on no, earth did no that happen? Sort of side <laughs> yeah, there, it, exactly. So, you know, uh, but, yeah, I, I think it'll just be an interesting thing to have the two things. Um, I don't think either of us um, think of it as being a, a competition. I think that if you can do a work like this one, which is so intimate and is basically characters talking to each other. So there are some incredibly wonderful, lyrical, elevated moments in Katya Kabanova. But there's also a lot of conversation. To, to me, it makes sense to do it in English, especially you know, for audiences who may not know Janacek very well. And we want to really present a piece that people feel they can engage with and feel that it's coming right off the stage to them. So I think in that respect, doing it in English is absolutely valid. Um, I think the difficulties come when you try to do Italian opera in English. Um, I know Opera North have got a marvellous Tosca now in Italian. And I think when there are these wonderful extended arias where the composer has written so specifically for the sound of the language to actually work with the music... Mm it's firstly much more difficult for the singers to sing in another language um, than the one intended. It doesn't fit so well with the music. And um, I wonder whether in those cases as well, audiences need perhaps so much to have all the detail of the text, especially if the singer is singing... I love you, I love you, I don't know what to do, I love you, I love you, a lot of times. So sounds and better for the audience in a foreign language, it can, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> I think so. And and also, you've got the surtitles anyway. So you just put one surtitle on yes, and leave it, yes. Yes, and that does often happen, doesn't it? You see one and then the singer's going on for another five <laughs> yes, minutes, but, but it's, it's all the, the same. Yeah. Exactly. So I think it's horses for courses, actually. Um, and I do love the idea that when an opera is more music drama, it really gets directly to the audience, so... In this case, I feel very at home. Um, I think the biggest challenge at ENO is because it's the, the Colosseum is actually apparently the widest lyrical stage in Europe. Mm. It's huge theatre. Um, getting the right sets on that stage so that the singers' voices are thrown out into the audience really well mm. is a big challenge and something that I think, um, you know, they don't always hit. I certainly had some productions that just didn't work because of that. Um, and I think uh, the other thing, of course, is, you know, for them particularly because of the conundrum of the big theatre 
keeping a large orchestra and chorus on. Money worries all the time, you know. Um, keeping on with interesting programme, I think, is something, you know, that they have always done well. And I know Martin is continuing, you know, and I really wish him good luck mm. with all that. I think it, it's it's changed. I think, um, you know, that golden period, the Harwood years, and um, when uh, Mark Elder was there, obviously it really hit a node at that time. And they did some very, very uh, out there, uh, in-your-face productions at a time when Covent Garden was perhaps, you know, still doing rather gilded, um, you know, sort of red velvet productions that didn't seem to be necessarily getting over the um, orchestra pit and really getting into the theatre. I think now that has all changed as well. And um, Covent Garden's is as much on the front foot as any other of the opera houses. Um so I think they do have new challenges. I think also ENO had this wonderful outreach programme, the Bayliss programme. Um, and again, they led the way with that for many, many years. And now I think the other companies have all mm -hmm. caught up. So I think ENO are repositioning themselves. Um, it's interesting that um, I remember even when I was there, there was this tremendous tug because some of the big musical companies loved the idea of being able to use the Coliseum and I remember at the time the managing director was saying no 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 we can't let that happen now they do do big chunks of music the musical theatre there and I think that's great because opera is another form of musical theatre it runs you know I think very smoothly if you're going from um I don't know, La Boheme to Sunset Boulevard why not you know I think the more the mixture of things there um, the more interesting it is. So I think that um, they haven't perhaps quite yet found their uh, niche as such, perhaps with new audiences. But I think there's every um, sense that, you know, with Martin now having some very clear artistic ideas about what he's going to do, I think it's going to be, you know, an exciting new new season for them, new new ideas coming. I don't know these days. I must admit that um, I very much enjoy the freelance opportunities that are coming my way. Um, it was wonderful, for example, to do the world premiere of Coraline, the Newmark Turnage Opera with the Royal Opera House at the Barbican. And projects like that, I think, uh, where my real, you know, and only role is what's the music is wonderful. And I'm very happy, I think, to leave all the admin side to the people <laughs> who are good at it, basically. Uh, so, you know, I, I I guess, yeah, I'm happy to keep going as I am at this point. And, you know, there are um, wonderful opportunities, I know, and wonderful companies out there. But I think for all people involved now with um, fixed companies, the, the fundraising, mm -hmm. the profile of the organization it's all such a large commitment now for everybody who's there um that you know perhaps i'm i'm lucky to escape some of that well it's interesting actually talking about you know doing a lot of 20th century music 21st century music um which i love and janacek very special to me um any time anyone asked me to do any more of his music i would i would jump at that um also interesting to me, I was very involved with the music of Michael Tippett earlier on in my career. I know that Michael's music has gone a bit quiet at the moment, although there have been some very interesting performances and so on. But I would love to do perhaps another Tippett opera at some point. Um, I've never done um, A Midsummer Marriage, and I think it's full of absolutely gorgeous music. 
Um, but other than that, I think the operas of Verdi perhaps are ones that I would love to explore more. It's something, an, an area perhaps of uh, opera that I've done, Rigoletto, Trovatore, and uh, quite a number of performances of Traviata. But perhaps some of the later operas, yeah, would be something I'd absolutely love to do. Kachka Banovo is currently playing at Leeds Grand Theatre and then on tour until the 22nd of March. Now, Lorna, you've been in the Upper North Company for a number of years now. What's it like when a director or conductor steps in front of you for the first time? Are you trying to suss them out? <laughs> I think so. Um, in a good I, way? Yeah, I like to think that <laughs> as, certainly as a chorus, um, we're quite, I, I hope we're quite nice. <laughs> Although I did once see an interview with Tim Albury where he said something about, you know, we're a formidable group of people and if you don't get them on side, you know, that's that's you, you're gone. Uh, and I think when the chorus saw that interview, our esteem for him went up. Um, it's a big old body of people, you know, and we do have a kind of tribal uh, opinion I think naturally whether we want it or not so the first time we see a director or a conductor it is fascinating and we think mm, I wonder what they're going to bring to the table and yeah and the, the opinions develop as the as the piece goes on. Now in that interview just one thing I want to pick out is, is Sean said that working with a different orchestra sometimes she just kind of has to um, put her faith in their hands they know how best theatres work they know how best the acoustics of a space work and sometimes if they're doing something weird in a rehearsal she just says uh, well okay it must be because they know what you know Leeds Grand Theatre sounds like when they get in the pit is that kind of the same as a chorus does you know a conductor come in front of you and you go I know you're telling me to do that but I know that when I got on stage <laughs> that happens more with directors so we uh it's the same uh, it's the same problem and actually I hugely respect Sean for making that observation and for running with it because not everyone does um, you know it's a lot of them is my way or the highway and I know best and you see the kind of leader of the orchestra quietly smiling to himself um, we get it often with directors so directors will come in and they have all these really exciting huge ideas and there are a lot of quirks of the theatres we perform in um the theatre royal in nottingham has no stage left wing so um you see directors come in i know i'm physically there like and And you think oh yeah i've all of those entrances we've planned they're gonna have to change um and things like that and directors will go well I want this and I want this and I want this and we'll just quietly stand at the back and go oh you wait until the first technical rehearsal (laughs) yeah and and you know then it happens and but you can't say anything you can't do anything it's part of the process and it's quite enjoyable to watch sometimes Okay, so moving back to our favourite topic of today, which is English National Opera. They've <laughs> yeah. had a very busy month, so so fair play to them yeah. uh, for popping up so so frequently today. Um, they've launched a free ticket scheme for under-18s. Um, these are for tickets in the balcony on Saturday evenings for all of their spring performances. Uh, under-16s need to be accompanied by an adult, but 17s and 18s can go for free by themselves. Um, now, on the surface, Lorna, this seems like a really great scheme. Um, I've got kind of two points just to kind of play devil's advocate with it a little bit. The first one for me is is whether price really is the problem for bringing new people into the opera. Not just young people, but people of any age. Is is price really the barrier? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Actually, it goes back to the uh, ENO in English Mm. article that we were discussing before. Um, I think it was Wigglesworth who kind of said, you know, I think it's less about the price of the ticket and more about them understanding it because he was using that as an argument for Mm. performing in English. I think it's both, but I think that there is... uh, 
uh, a risk of underselling as well always with these things if you if you if you just plummet your price point you know what message is that sending just economically to to your audience perhaps um you know we're already if a free ticket, obviously, but even the lowest price ticket of 10 or 20 pounds or something is way below what you'd pay for a day, an afternoon at the football or a cocktail, a cocktail even. <laughs> exactly. So I think maybe not for under 18s, a cocktail, not for under 18s. No, no, no. Um, I think you're already offering great value. Uh, I think a free ticket sends a different message, actually, and it may be answering a different question. Um, uh, a free ticket is not a heavily discounted ticket. They're sending very different messages. Um, so I, th- I think it's a sound uh, a sound decision. I think mm. it uh, will go well for them in a kind of audience development sense. Yeah, n- not necessarily with this scheme, but I must say that generally I have a real problem with free tickets, which is that, as you said there, Lorna, it's about what is the value in that experience. Mm. Mm. Whereas if you tell people that this is a free thing, they then value that whole experience as free. And we all well know that opera is not <laughs> a free a free. Very endeavor. not free. Yeah, and I'll give you an example. I know someone that was given a free ticket to go to um, one of the big opera companies. They had a really, really good time. I said, would you go again and pay for your ticket? And, th- and they said, oh, no, I wouldn't do that. Mm. Because they've now come to that kind of mental adjustment that, that this is an experience that is that is free. Um, and as I say, we well know that that can't be the, the, the case kind of going forward. Um, so that that's kind of one, one kind of, point I have about this. The the other is because these are balcony tickets, um, my question, and I don't know how you feel about this, Emma, is that if you want to get again people interested in opera, is is putting them in the balcony kind of the best idea? If you've got that one opportunity to grab someone, um, is that really sort of where you want to be putting them? And I'll give you an example here. A few years ago I went to go and see um the Nutcracker for the first time, not not knowing anything really about ballet or being a ballet fan. Um, the first time I saw it I was sort of to the side, the back, quite high up. It was fine, you know. It was all right. Didn't mind it. It was all right. Um, a couple of days later, um, I went again, um, sat right in the middle of the dress circle, had an amazing evening um, because suddenly my whole experience of it had been transformed. And now I'm much more likely to go and sit high up in the back, tucked away for another ballet um, because I've now had that kind of amazing experience. So for me, my, my concern is that by having the free tickets in the balcony, you're perhaps losing the opportunity to really engage this audience. I don't know what you think. Yes, yeah, so that's a... That's a very interesting point. I haven't really, I haven't thought about that because actually, um, to kind of play double devil advocate, um, <laughs> devil advocate squared, I believe it's uh, I believe yeah it's called. technical term. <laughs> um, when I when I went to see um, yeah my very first opera, I can tell you exactly where I was sat at, in Nottingham Theatre Royal, and I was front row of the gods, slightly to the side. Mm, interesting. That was completely captivated. Um, again, I was definitely talking my my personal experience, but. That was my very that was my first view of opera and where I was sat in the theatre and obviously granted, the Nottingham Theatre is, is is a beautiful beautiful venue. Uh, it's nowhere near as big as the Coliseum because what is? Um, and I've sat I think I've sat probably all over the Colly um, for various things. The balcony seats are slightly less comfortable, I will say. You do kind of feel um, like you're constantly falling forward, don't you, up in the balcony seats? There's a bit seats. of that, and yeah. I also feel that there is. Um, just this, the actual the seat padding yeah. is definitely not as thick. Um, but then saying that I, I've there is something about being closer to the closer to the action. You know, being able to see more of the performance in terms of you because know, you've got these fantastic performers on stage doing a amazing things with their voices, but also you hope doing really expressive things with their with their body and their faces. Um, but but I think I I'm always of the opinion that to get people in especially younger people 
is no bad thing. Mm. And also, I, I, I remember being a teenager that kind of free things were were great, and obviously they still are as you're as you're older. But when you really don't, you know, you, you you're not yet working, and you don't have necessarily that much that much money to spare. Um, that you, I think, what Ian and I are hoping is that they are creating the next generation of audience by getting getting them in now for free in the hope that they will then pay in the future yeah. which is a risky thing to to do but I'd much rather they were doing that than not well because yes. the first time I read this I was like yes yes well done Stuart Murphy this is a really good yeah I think it's, it's, I... it's just getting these schemes right I think for 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 me it's about getting the right experience for those people and really understanding what the barriers are um, yeah undoubtedly as you said Lorna Price is a barrier but for me, there are some more fundamental ones. And we're not going to get into schools, music, education and all that sort of thing <laughs> today because we would be here all day. Yeah. Um, but there are so many different things. And I don't want to be too downbeat about opera in the future of opera and accessibility and, and whatnot. But, you know, we all have to be kind of mindful of some of these. Issues. I think it's important that they're capping it at 18. I think that's, yeah. that makes a very clear distinction. If they, they, they have a different... Um, uh, scheme for young adults I think which full disclosure I, I take full advantage of where would there we go thank you <laughs> um but I think the free tickets capping at 18 again sends a very different message uh it's saying these are not people with a disposable income so let's bring them in um uh and I think there's probably a higher chance that they will turn around and when they do have some disposable income we'll spend mm. some of it on coming to the opera um I think the other point that's popped into my head is that for a lot of people first time opera trips tend to result in uh, a range of reactions but one of them that pops up again and again is the effect of hearing an unamplified human voice Mm. and I think what you get up in the gods even if you've got a restricted view ticket is you still get that um and if you're miles away from them and you can still hear them and you can still hear the words they're saying then that's even more impressive um and I think we're used to theatre we're used to live performance uh, in a number of different guises be that you know uh, a rock gig or a, um, a piece of musical theatre the west end is not short of audience members so there are plenty of people that experience live theatre on a regular basis and i think what sets opera apart from that is the unamplified human voice uh, consideration and you do get that still uh, if you're kind of sitting up on the ceiling Yep, so I think it's fair to say that, you know, well done to Eno for kind of launching the scheme. Uh, we look Great. forward to seeing how it goes. It's, yeah. I, I must say there have been some very encouraging early signs, certainly if Twitter's anything to go by. And I know that Stuart Murphy, the CEO, um, would put out some some nice tweets about his his new fancy scheme. Um, but there do seem to be some some good early signs. Um, so all the best with Eno. And, and again, if you're over 18, but under, I think it's 30 or 35, they also have an amazing scheme, um, 10, 20, 30 pound tickets. Um, to go and see all of their productions. So do sign up to that. The mm. name escapes me right now, but go to the inner website, you'll find it there. Now, the idea of increasing the diversity of, of casting, again, has, has kind of come to a head um, this month through uh, Grange Park. Uh, they're uh, producing Porgy and Bess this summer, and they've put an open call out because they can't find um, enough uh, black and minority ethnic singers to um, fill in their chorus. Um, now, it should be said that this comes after a very successful Porgy, which you mentioned, Emma, at e mm. um, which did have a, an all-black cast. So um, there's obviously kind of specific circumstances from Grange Park's point of view. Um, but, Lorna, is, is it not kind of depressing that kind of across all of the freelance singers out there, Grange Park can't put together a cast for this production? It's hugely depressing. I think it says a lot about the... 
uh, lengths that the opera industry have still got to go to. I wrote down when I first read this article, I really don't think that in the 1930s, Gershwin thought we'd still be having this conversation in 2019. Yeah. Um, the fact that he put in writing, and it, I think I don't, I don't know the exact wording, but I don't think it says all the performers must be black. I, uh, I think there's some slightly more nuanced wording around it, which, um, which Wasfi mentioned when she was talking about the challenges that they're facing. Um, but it is whatever the wording is, it is inferred that none of the soloists or choristers on stage should be white, and because it has a very specific setting, um, and I really don't think when Gershwin kind of put put the law down for Porgy and Bess that he thought, you know, almost 100 years later, we'd still be struggling. His great vision was that it would open the doors for black mm. performers that didn't necessarily have the opportunity. Um, and that is still coming true with these open calls. It is bringing people in from a wider range of backgrounds, um, non-operatic, non-musical theatre even. Yeah, and it should be it should be said that that's the way that Grange Park are kind of trying to go about this recruitment process is saying to, asking people to come forward who might not have operatic backgrounds necessarily, yeah. um, but who could still kind of play a part in this in this production um, as well. Um, it kind of seems to me, Emma, kind of anecdotally at least, that we're seeing more diverse representation in, in principal roles, certainly with the big companies, but not necessarily in the choruses, um, and I know from my perspective, casting for a, a smaller scale company, you know, without the benefit of casting directors or being able to travel around the world to recruit from overseas, that you know we're met when casting for shows with a very large, a very talented, but extremely samey pool of talent. Yeah. That there's kind of a top layer where um, one is able to kind of um, cast a cast a wide net, so to speak. But actually, kind of below that, um, as you were saying, Lorna, there's you know kind of a real a real kind of representation problem in the, in the wider pool of singers. Yes, no, def definitely, and there, yeah, there is there is definitely a representation problem, and whether we have to kind of start to, I know you don't want to start talking about schools education because we will be here all day. Um, sorry, music education. Um, that they can they can do as much as they can, but ultimately, if you're given given the pool of people who are out there and who are who are working, then if that is not as diverse as we want it to be, which it definitely isn't then there is a more of a root cause going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, if, if statistic that sort of, you know, one in 10 trained singers gets jobs at the moment, all 10 of those singers are, are, are white, I think is yeah. kind of the, the way. Mm. So there is a real fundamental grassroots kind of kind of problem here. Mm. Going back to, to ENO for our final return to the Coliseum for, for today, um, uh, they've published their kind of new strategy for, for nurturing a black, Asian and minority ethnic uh, talent. Um, the They've taken some proactive steps. The first is to recruit four choristers um, from that community on an initial nine-month contract, caveated with um, the statistic that I think of 175 permanent chorus members with opera companies, four at the moment mm -hmm. in the whole of the UK um, for BAME communities. So they're going to recruit four um, on this initial contract. Um, they're also going to be paid director observerships for directors from a BAME background as well. Lorna, do you think that this kind of proactive kind of ways just the way that we we need to go yeah i really do uh it's it's such a thorny issue many singers i know that are in the profession have widely varying opinions on it um there might be some singers that thought they would be maybe a shoe in for the role or they might have a really high chance of getting that. But now it turns out that because they're white, they can't go for the job. Um, obviously, it's a hugely emotive issue, but I absolutely think this is the right way to do it. For me, it's um, 
I wrote down this this concept of equality versus equity. Mm. Um, this idea that are we trying to achieve equality of opportunity or equality of outcome? And they are two different things. And if we want equality of outcome, which is something that I would love to see, um, equality of opportunity doesn't go all the way to doing that. You've really got to give people an extra step up you've got to really open the doors and say how can we help you improve your opportunities because otherwise the one person out of 10 you know that gets the opera job if those 10 people are white that one person's going to be white yeah yeah and it should be said that we're all sitting here talking about it as sort of three white middle class people yeah um we're not we're not you know and and i would i would you know really really like people to get in touch with you know kind of views or experiences of, of of kind of some of these these issues so you know kind of do get in touch on our social media or info operacast.co.uk be really keen to hear from you now we've spoken about lots of weighty issues today so let's um let's bring a little bit of levity to proceedings i think to to, to conclude with um First of all, something that really caught my eye last month was the um, world-renowned bass Matthew Rose popping up in a Pizza Express um, with a performance of <laughs> Vinterizer. I'll put a, a note in the show notes so you can kind of see a bit of a clip of the, the performance. But obviously Pizza Express have these jazz kind of clubs in their restaurants all around the country. Um, so an excellent infrastructure um, already in place. And I thought that this looked like a really fabulous performance, a really wonderful setting for it. Yes, I, I love this story. This made me, when you sent me through the link, it just made me so happy. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, there's something about, actually, Lauren and I were talking about this um, off mic earlier. Um, there's something about the, just being up close to that kind of quality of voice. Um, and and it is, it's incredible. You have someone at the top of their game, as Matthew is, um, just being able to like, and to be able to see the whites of his eyes as he's performing this fantastic piece. Um, there's nothing, there's nothing like it. And Lorna and I were discussing a little how before a production uh, moves on stage, uh, it culminates in a rehearsal room run or a studio run. Mm. And some of the shows that I've worked on, my favourite performances of them have been the studio run because it is so immediate. Um, yeah, there's, there's nothing like it really. Yeah, it goes back to what we were saying about putting under 18s in the balcony at the Coliseum, I suppose. You know? Yes, yeah. Not, not, not yeah, the same yeah. for every production, but there is something to say about that immediacy, you know. And I, I wonder if someone's kind of missing a trick, you know, kind of doing a, a one-act tour sponsored by Pizza Express to all of the jazz cafes around the around the country. Love that. I think I think I a project totally is, is, yeah. is bubbling up. <laughs> I love the fact that it is a series, though. They've really committed to that. It isn't just a kind of one-off test the water thing. I think there's another two concerts in the same series. Yeah. So, you know, they've committed to seeing if, it, you know, if it works. Yeah. And pizza is Italian, and so is opera. <laughs> So, you know, there's a natural... Although Matthew Rose vinterized yeah. Also you know, that, we're... yeah. But it's, you know, it's... um They've they've established this uh, jazz cafe uh, thing and I, I love it. I really love it. I love that up close and personal thing. It's definitely... I wrote, it's not dumbing it down because these singers are top notch, you know. Oh, absolutely, It's yeah. proper... Yeah. In your face, top-notch singing. Although I have no idea if that audience in Pizza Express was a was a Royal Opera House audience or who who I was who was there. I also wrote but, that. Uh, I literally wrote down, but how many audience members were new? And I put that in inverted commas. And then I said, do we, the ones that are not being targeted here, need to maybe stay away? <laughs> do we need to not be buying up all the tickets because kind of you know then is it not actually achieving the goals it set out to achieve lovely yeah. as it is uh, yeah um, i know we, we, we're finding lots of problems in lovely schemes this week aren't we? but it's nice to pick them apart it is it? it's nice to kind of give them give them a prod if they stand up to the test you know then they they know they're doing well yeah and, and who doesn't love pizza so. um, yeah love pizza um 
And finally, um, again, from the sublime to the ridiculous coming full circle, um, I don't know if any of you have seen this, but um, Theatre Munch and Gladbach have launched a new production of The Magic Flute, um, and to say it's inspired by Star Wars is rather an understatement. The entire production is swathed in the sci-fi adventure series. Um, uh, Pamina is Princess Leia, Tamino is Luke Skywalker with full costumes, Manastatos is Darth Maul, the Queen of the Night is Darth Vader, um, uh, comes with, with full Darth Vader outfit and helmet, it should be said. There are Ewoks, the flute, of course, is a lightsaber. Um, uh, dancing CGI Stormtroopers is the chorus. I mean, I was just really disappointed that for Sarastro, they've just kind of stuck him in a cloak. I mean, surely... Surely Sarastro is Yoda. Surely. Surely they've missed the biggest <laughs> trick here. Um, we'll put it in the show notes and on social media, but it, it's extraordinary what they've done, and I, I don't mean that in a good way. Um, <laughs> for, for me, the, 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 but the most bizarre thing about it is that the actors act out the, uh, the opera in front of a blue screen, and then above them there's a film screen where they put in the CGI backdrops behind them. So it's like watching a film and the making of at the same time. Um, and it's just... For me, it's, I've obviously not been to much in Gladbach to see it, but it just seems like a bizarre theatrical experiment. I would totally be there if I were there. I, I, I think, think, it I think sounds, it's sold out. They seem, they've, they've achieved their marketing aims, if nothing else. Exactly. I mean, it's wacky. It's ridiculous. I'm doing. Is it magic... wacky or is it just doing Star Wars? <sighs> I don't know. I mean, there's inspiration and there's just. Well, you know, where does Star your Wars. audience come from? If the audience is 93% people that just love Star Wars that have kind of seen this thing and they want to come and see it and then they sit down and we kind of, you know, give them guerrilla opera and they're suddenly listening to Mozart without them realising it, then great. Um, you know, I, I think all magic flutes should be done with lightsabers. Hmm. Why are you saying that? <laughs> <laughs> and if you haven't seen Opera North's current production of Magic Flutes... <laughs> you should go and see that. <laughs> Um, Emma, have you ever been inspired to do something similar, sort of a, a Lord of the Rings Figaro or anything like that? Oh, well, now you said that idea, David. That <laughs> She's like writing it down and pitching it to directors, <laughs> pitching it to theatres. Um, I mean, I do, uh, you know, up, up to the age of 19, I wanted to be a film critic. So I do, tend, when I'm directing, I do tend to lean on, on film references more than anything. Um, and actually, I had a gorgeous moment when I was directing a youth group and I went, bang bang and like to a man everyone was like yes yes we have I was like right it's like this exact moment in Chitty. it's a frame of reference um, isn't it yeah. yeah frame of reference I mean when um I think what I, what I love about this idea and I've, I've not seen it I probably will not get a chance to see it this Star Wars flute is that Magic Flute is a fairy tale so you can do pretty much whatever you want with it and Star Wars is a fairy tale so they do it, when I, yeah, when I kind of saw the the headline, I was like, yeah, that'll work. I can see how that works. So, yeah, all power to them, I think. Mm, well, I'm all for frames of reference. I'm not for <laughs> just ripping off everything in Star Wars. <laughs> and, but it should be said that, that um, the speaker is Spock. So they do throw in oh, okay. a tiny bit of Star Trek in there as I was well. literally about to say, it doesn't sound like they've shoehorned too much in. It feels like it's a really natural fit for the characters. And then you've just brought Spock into it. Well, so. ladies and gentlemen of the listenership, you can be, you can be the judge of Love that. Love it. Now, every month, uh, we select a hidden gem, an opera that is very rarely seen or performed and make the case for it. Uh, this month, it's my turn, uh, and I've chosen an opera by Albinez, the Spanish composer and better known for his piano writing. Um, he wrote a few operas as well, and the one that I've picked is Merlin, uh, so based on the Arthurian legend. Um, it's got a libretto by Francis Monicoutes, who was Albinez's uh, patron. Um, what a wonderful name, by the way, Francis Monicoutes, of Love the Coutes banking family. Not only are you called Coutes... 
you're also called Money. It's yeah, brilliant. It's beautiful. Um, it's one of the worst librettos you'll ever come across. It's <laughs> okay. this horrible sort of. So you're of selling this opera, is mock, it? <laughs> mock Shakespearean. Everything is sort of betwixt and betweens and twaths and. It's, mm, sounds it's, lovely to sing. It's absolute pap, yeah. <laughs> but the music is wonderful, and I think if if you took it, rewrote the libretto, um, you'd have an absolute hit on your hands. Um, it was originally supposed to be a part of a trilogy with Lancelot and Guinevere as well. Um, Lancelot oh. was sketched out but never completed, and Guinevere never saw the light of day. Um, but the music, the music is wonderful. Very sort of heavy Wagner influence. The start, um, the overture's got a very sort of Dutchman feel about it. Um, uh, but a really, really great piece. And um, there is a recording out there um, with Placido Domingo. Um, it's an all Spanish cast singing a weird English libretto, so you won't understand any words on the recording. We subtitles. That's, uh... <laughs> we <need some> subtitles. <laughs> um, uh, if you really do want to look up the libretto, you can you can uh, look at it whilst you're listening along. Um, but the recording gives you a great flavour of the work. Um, it had its premiere um, only fairly recently with Stuart Skelton um, as King Arthur. Um, but it must be ripe. Um, for a revival, uh, certainly if someone wants to rewrite the libretto, um, I think you'd have an absolute hit on your hands. Um, there are some other Albinez operas out there as well, sadly also with librettos by Francis Money Coutts, um, including Henry Clifford, uh, a War of the Roses-inspired opera. Um, so this month, uh, my pick is Merlin. Now, to end, as we do every month on the pod, we're going to pit our panellists together in a little opera quiz. Uh, the format is we go in turns, um, asking our panellists to name an opera by a particular composer. The first person to get stuck loses. I am now, certain that's going to be me. Can I just preface <laughs> this on? <laughs> now, I'm going to go... I'm going very mainstream. Okay. We'll start with you, Lorna. Okay. Okay. Can you please name me an opera by Puccini? <gasps> I was really hoping you were going to say Puccini. I'm going to start safe and go La Boheme. Emma. Um, Madame Butterfly. Uh, La Fanchula del West. Damn it, <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> um, I'm just going to suppose you're not cheating, Emma, because I must say that you. Um, no, I, I we, we can't I'm see not, you. I'm not, yeah. I'm not cheating. Um, uh, Sora Angelica. Oh, nice. Uh, Il Tabaro. Janice Geeky. Okay. I see what you've just done there, yeah. Nice. <laughs> um, it's the Twitter ah, It's me. Oh, no. I had one and I've forgotten it. Oh, Tosca. I feel like I might need to hand in my opera badge. Um, I feel like there's some really obvious ones we're missing. <laughs> I, there is. There are two really obvious ones. One semi-obvious. The other two slightly more obscure. I'm going to have to hurry you, Emma. Um... I genuinely don't know if this is Verdi or Puccini. I really about throw back. I always get myself. that wrong. Elon Bardi. I'm afraid that's Verdi. <gasps> oh no! Did Puccini do a Manon or a Manon Lesco or something? One Very good, Lon. You are our winner this yeah. week. Oh. Manon Lesco, or as uh, my computer has changed it to uh, Man on Lesco. Man on. That, well, <laughs> the, that's a whole different opera. That's, that's the footballing version. <laughs> Man on Lesco. Um, you could have had La Rondine. Oh. You could have had Turandot. Oh my gosh. That's appalling. Um, but again, that's always one of those in my head that I can't remember as Puccini or Verdi. So. Yeah, and you have both been put on the spot. So one week I will take part in the quiz. Oh, and... I'd love to see that. <laughs> and we'll see. The other two that we didn't mention early, Puccini's um, Lavilli and Edgar. 
as well. Oh, Edgar, yeah. Um, so well done to Lorna. Congratulations. How exciting. And commiserations, Emma. Um, but a, a difficult quiz. Well done. So thank you very much for joining us for this latest episode of OperaCast. Can I say a huge thank you to Lorna James for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's been a delight and pleasure to have you here. And thank you very much, Emma Black, for calling in all the way from London town. Again, my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Not at all. And thank you as well to Sean Edwards for being our wonderful guest. Um, she was an absolute pleasure to, to interview. Um, so if you're in Leeds, Newcastle, Nottingham, or I dare say Salford, um, do go and see Katrika Banova on until the 22nd of March. Thank you as always to Chapel FM for hosting us and our lovely sound engineer for today, Elliot. Thank you very much. And we will see you again next month. <laughs>